Welcome to episode five, the final episode of the Scaredy Cats Horror Show. This week, we are discussing Get Out with our guest, playwright Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Let's go. Welcome to Scaredy Cats Episode 5. Um, I am Alex Goldman. As always, my co-host PJ Vote is here. Hi, PJ. Hi, Alex. Um, this, of course, is the show where I try and get PJ to appreciate horror movies. And it's all kind of been leading up to this, right, PJ? This is this is the... Um... Yeah, it's not. it wasn't just appreciating horror movies. It was, I literally wanted to be able to watch the movie Get Out. And so the idea was to put me through an intense course of horror movie training so that I could be acclimatized, so that I could actually enjoy Get Out as a movie. So that was your goal. My goal was just to watch a bunch of horror movies with you and see how you reacted. And uh, I've done f- five of them. The sixth is Get Out. And every week we have a guest. And this week our guest is OB award-winning playwright and Pulitzer Prize nominee Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Uh, Brandon, thanks so much for uh, joining us. I'm, happy, I'm so happy to be on this show. What a surprise. So first things first, uh... The, the the episode this week is Get Out. We've done five movies so far. Um, right before we started recording, you were like, uh, you got to get out too fast. And I'd love to talk well, about you it. Said, yeah. no, Brandon said, he was like, I have critiques. And I thought you meant of Get Out. But you meant of our process. <laughs> of just your actual, your actual concept. I mean, it's, it's part of why I'm like so freaked out about doing this. Because I feel like as I get old, you know, I, I like teach. I teach at University of Texas. And like, Part of the problem is I feel like my professor self taking over my actual body, my person body. And I'm always like, oh, God, everything has a syllabus and I want to make the syllabus. And that's sort of like what my experience was listening to these where I was like, oh, my God, there's so many steps to really get the richest experience of Get Out. There's like so many movies he missed. But then I guess this is like the series finale. So I can I guess I can just shut up. I will I will say uh, my original plan for this for this show was to do like 25 episodes. Oh, hilarious. Okay. Um, and then we started making it, and we were like, oh, this is really hard. We also have another show. Let's cut it down and right. cut it down and cut it down. <laughs> so so there, yeah. were, there were, between Alien, which was our third episode, and Hereditary and Midsummer, which was our fourth episode, there were probably yeah. seven or eight movies that I wanted to watch before Jesus. we went to this. Yeah. yeah. I guess I just feel so, I go so hard on Ari Aster that I'm like, oh, what a missed opportunity to just get some things in there that, just some basics, some like vitamins that would right. have really been the right launch pad. You but. know, I wanted to do like Candyman. I wanted to do Blair Witch oh, yeah. Project. This is, this is exactly what I'm saying. Like, I feel like there's a whole thread of like social thrillers, which are like a, some of the best, you know, f- horror films in history. And it's just like, oh, that I feel like you, you kind of have to know the Stream trilogy before you can really get in to get out because so much of what it's what it's doing is like self-referential to the genre itself, you know, well, or I, just like, yeah. I will say I I have seen Scream. Um, you have seen Scream. Okay. I saw all the Screams because, and this is also part of the reason I hate horror movies so much. I didn't like them anyway. I was bullied into watching them on a few sleepovers. They haunted my nightmares. Scream in particular, my best friend growing up loved it. Like loved it to the extent that he would try to scare me by being in character from the movie. So, like, <laughs> we were hanging out at his house. Friend? <laughs> I don't know. In retrospect, <laughs> like, literally, we'd be, like, playing video games, and he'd be like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom, just keep playing. He would disappear. And then I would just hear, like, 
dragging sounds on the wall of the room. And he would he would either have a baseball bat and a scream mask or a knife and a scream mask. An actual <laughs> so knife? An actual knife, like, from the kitchen. And he would chase me around the house. And then and not just what? chase me, like, stalk <laughs> me around the house. Are you still friends with this person? No. No. <laughs> You're not still friends. <laughs> surprise, surprise, Yeah. Okay, but so I have seen Scream. Is there other what what else would you have had me see before seeing Get well, Out? Well, oh God, because part of the real pleasure of Get Out is how like dense it is with like references to other films. And it's I mean, it is kind of a work of genius because it's so it's 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 like so layered in a way that a lot of things aren't. But it, one of the big references is Stepford Wives, which is an incredible movie. So I just watched Stepford Wives yesterday. In preparation for this. Oh, oh, wow. And how amazing, right? It's, it, it, I was shocked at, so, so PJ, and this will give away a bit of the, of the plot of uh, Get Out. Stepford Wives is about a woman who lives in New York, who is an mm-hmm. aspiring photographer, who, mm-hmm. who moves to Connecticut with her husband and finds out that uh, all the women there are being replaced by, by sort of like subservient robots. Oh, wow. But specifically robots that are manufactured by Disney. Using oh, yeah, Disney yeah. technologies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like amazing. The, the sort of main antagonist is this creepy guy who is called Diz because he's he worked at Disney for a long time. And it's sort of this allegory for like the reaction to like the sexual revolution and Yeah, it's totally about second wave feminism. Right. Like white specifically like white woman feminism. The only other thing that I wanted to ask about before we like get into get out more directly is just like Brandon, when we were talking about like when I called you and asked if you wanted to do this. One of the really nice surprises is because you're you write plays, which I think people think of as kind of like high culture, and I think they think of like VHS horror and a lot of horror as like low culture. But I was happily surprised at how much you love horror. I was just wondering if you could like talk about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I so you know my way to writing is through horror, but specifically, this is humiliating because I can only talk about it because I, as we're all going down these pandemic rabbit holes, recently I was like, I wonder what R.L. Stein's up to because that was like my gateway drug oh, into reading was like the Goosebump books, which then I graduated to Fear Street, which was like the whole series was about like teenagers murdering each other, Whoa. you know. And then I also, but then around that time, which is when we're all kind of like graduating to that next level rating of movie going, I was kind of growing up in this golden age of like teen slasher movies. And that was sort of the way in. That's like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. And so for me, it's like, like I was already kind of a genre nerd growing up. Like I loved reading like Stephen King, Far Too Young or like Ray Bradbury. But for some reason, the thing that felt like the thing that I could go to that my family couldn't at the movies was was these like slasher movies, which I loved ad nauseum. And what did you love about them? I, you know, I think it was because, well, I feel like anything I say now is going to be bullshit because I like hindsight, it's so 2020. But I think part of it was a, there, these were, these were, these were movies that had characters that were technically closer to my age, right? The storytelling of horror is completely predicated almost more than any genre on the magic of identification as a viewer, like who you're being asked to identify with and how is kind of constantly being manipulated by horror writers, right? But so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these, kids who are like maybe three or four years older than I am. They're all, they're all like high school kids, you know, who are, of course, they're played by like 35-year-olds um, <laughs> who are all dead now. But, uh, but you know, you're sort of watching this 
story that's kind of could be your life. I mean, you're, it's very vivid and it's so dramatic and it's the opposite of growing up in like suburban DC. But so I was, I was just like, I was just, that was just my jam. I also love this show, Tales from the Crypt, which I would stay up late and watch. I mean, there's so many things like, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Was this Nickelodeon show that was like the horror show for kids? I, I was deep in this, deep in this, right? Alex loves Tales from the Crypt and right now is physically restraining himself from doing a Crypt Keeper. I love the Crypt Keeper so much. I want to bring oh. the Crypt Keeper back for his own standalone show. Can you imagine how fun it would be to write oh my God, yes. his puns for the crib keeper yeah oh totally i mean we'll also let's talk about puns too with this movie because that's part of what's kind of amazing about the whole thing but anyway point being i'm immersed in this i just thought it was like everything to me and then of course i grew up and went to college and became pretentious and started <laughs> and then but then you know i lived in, i lived in germany like in like none of us do um in my like mid-20s for a second and i had this really weird um roommate situation where none of us know no three of us spoke the same language. So we all kind of, we couldn't really talk to each other. And the one that I was the most distant from was this German nurse named Sarah. And we had nothing in common. But one day we realized, she kept saying this word, Murderhenka. Murderhenka? You want to watch Murderhenka? And I'm like, what is she talking about? And I realized that Murderhenka was like German, I guess, for, for horror movies. But I... I realized like, oh, we're going to bond over these movies because right. horror is like a common language. Like the fear, the dread of death. It, 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 there's no like complica- complicated language in these movies. So I wound up like, it was kind of a funny like cultural exchange where like I would, she would show me like a German one, which was bad. But then I would like, I would like one up her with like a scream and she'd just like, her mind would be blown, you know? Um, and that's how I reacquainted myself with like that entire, all of those franchises, like Final Destination, the Know What You Did Last Summer ones. Like it was... It was kind of amazing. Uh, at the tail end of the 90s, I lived with a guy who was like who was like one of those rare VHS collector weirdos. Like, you oh know, before gosh. there were like viral internet. But he would be like, you've got to check out this Italian horror movie. This was an unofficial sequel to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. And there were three other sequels made after that. You've got to watch them all. I've got them all on my bookshelf. And then he'd be like, let's do Robitussin first. So, uh, <laughs> so, so the movies I mean, would go... I- from feeling like they were 90 minutes to feeling like they were eight hours. And so it was like watching 36 hours of zombie movies. And um, it definitely was like a way for me to be like, oh, wow, the horror universe is so much bigger than I ever imagined it to be. That's amazing. I mean, it does reward, all these genres kind of reward obsessiveness, though. That's what's kind of really pleasurable about them. And why five is just not enough, PJ. You got to keep going. You got to keep going to get to the goods. This is just the early high. Early high. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so unpleasant for me. Uh, so so I do I do want to get to the movie, but I first I wanted to say uh, very quickly for our audience, PJ did not honor the Manzoukas rules on this particular episode. Oh, God. We, the, well, ma- I could. It wasn't because I was being a baby. It was because we were on deadline. We were, like, working on a big story. I was editing. And so the only time that we could watch it and be able to have a conversation about it and put it out on time meant watching it in the late afternoon. But I did it with the blinds drawn. I made the room as dark as I could. I didn't go to the bathroom. I We watched it together, which is your breaking the Manzoukas rules. Fine. I feel like this sounds like a big excuse, but I feel like the way I didn't break the Manzoukas rules is I was trying. I didn't feel like at this point I was trying to like escape the movie. I felt like I was trying to watch so, it. So uh, the other thing I wanted to ask before we step through the movie is, PJ, did you like this movie? I loved this movie. Wow, loved. <laughs> I love this. I love this much more than anything we've watched. And I have to say, even though I didn't enjoy 
being scared by other scary movies, I do think it, I think if if I'd just been like, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie, I would have been so scared and so scared of being scared that I wouldn't have, I would have been overwhelmed by it. I think I actually got to enjoy it the way a more normal person would get to. Ooh, you've gotten more normal over the course of this. I'm so glad to hear that. In this way, yes. <laughs> um, all right, so the the two-line summary of this movie, um, Get Out is about a black man named Chris who is dating a white woman named Rose. She goes to the family's palatial estate for the weekend, um, and it turns out that they're a bunch of weirdos who are doing uh, body swapping where they take old white people and put them in the bodies of young black people. Um, that about covers it, right? That's a pretty good two-line summary, pretty I think. Pretty close. So we're just spoiling things. That's okay, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're spoiling. Okay, we're, great, okay, we, great, we're, great. we're driving through spoilers. Um, oh, good. Okay. So, so, like, just right away, this movie does what I think is now pretty common, which is the sort of, like, establishing kill. We call that a cold open in the biz, just so you guys know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're asking, what happened for a really long time? Yeah. But this one feels different because a lot of times it's like, they just exist to establish the motives of the killer. But in this, like, the actual victim returns, which I think is super brilliant and, like, a nice subversion of that moment, right? So it starts with Andre. He's on the phone. Half a mile away from Edgewood Lane. He's walking through a neighborhood that he is not familiar with. It's crazy. They got me out here in this creepy, confusing house suburb. A neighborhood that he's very uncomfortable in because he's a black man walking home, walking alone at night. Like a sore thumb out here. Um, and he sees a car. The car turns around, and like basically, someone jumps out and gets him. Right? It's really. I found it really scary. It's really scary because it feels like a realistic, horrifying thing that happens to black men walking in neighborhoods in America. So it felt really like that is grounded correct. and real and scary in a way that was worse than if it was like, I don't know, like a demon or something like that. It's also worth remembering that, uh, you know, when that when that sequence happens, you don't you actually don't know if he's alive or dead at the end, right? That there is a sense that a guy's just been killed in front of you, right? Yeah, I assumed yeah. he was dead because he's he's like strangled. It's really... It's, like, slow and visceral, and then he's, like, dragged into the car by some guy wearing mm-hmm. a scary, like, night mask. Yeah. Um, but but then we sort of get introduced to the main characters, who are Rose and Chris. Rose is a white 20-something. Chris is a black 20-something. And they're, like, packing to go to her parents' house for the weekend. And he is v- very nervous uh, to go. Um, and like one of the things that I, I was reading about Jordan Peele and Jordan Peele's whole thing was like, basically I wrote a movie about what it's like to feel nervous in a room as a black guy. That's interesting. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about the movie is that, uh, like when I saw, I saw with my, with my husband and we went with like our closest couple friend who are in fact Caucasian Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we went, well, I weirdly went to it because I know, I know Betty Gabriel. We went to school together and I was like, I, got, I heard she's in this movie. Got to go see this movie, you know? And I had no context. None of us had any context going in for the movie. But it was in that scene where I was like, oh shit, we're about to have a totally different experience with this movie than our couple friend are. And it's going to be so rad to like, because <laughs> there's so much signaling. There's so much like secret signaling happening that makes it, that makes, that actually makes the movie what it is. Well, and this is something I'm really wanted to ask you about. I was like looking forward to talking about what I was wondering watching it is like, for me, it's like, okay, there's this really scary opening scene. 
And then for a while, you're just seeing, what are their names again? Rose and Chris. Rose and Chris. You're like seeing their relationship. And I knew this was a movie that was like about race and racism and was like a satire. And so as a white person watching a lot of that movie, I feel like what I'm watching is like, what is white racism going to look like in this movie? And am I going to feel like, oh shit, I recognize myself in it? Or am I going to be like, I don't do that? I think if I was watching that movie and I were black, I'd be like watching it more from his perspective, which is like, he's looking around, seeing whether he's safe in a place or not safe. And there's all these signs that he's not safe. And like, at some point, I think I started to identify more with him. But at first, I had this just tension that I think came from being a white person. And it made it a different movie for like 20 minutes for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that was, yeah, that was very intentional. I think that part of what part of what this movie does is that it's inverting, you know, so when we talk about genres, it's sort of like a codified system of, of principles or ideas or values that make up a viewing experience. Mm-hmm. And part of, but part of what was amazing about what he was doing is he was inverting so many of those principles and creating a space where you didn't know how to be in it anymore, right? Because Allison Williams's character is 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 to me at least the she would normally be the hero of this film. She would normally be in this genre of film, she would normally be the center of that story. And so of right. course you feel predisposed like you're you're like you know, your instincts are being like, okay, this is how I'm supposed to watch it, you know. But actually, but like you said, you know, your instinct wasn't to identify with Chris. You yeah. know what does that mean? You know, and, yeah. and also I don't, you know, I didn't really choose to identify with anyone really either. But, you know, because but that's just like, the, that's just part of what it's gesturing to about like systemic racism is it's like you are, you play into it emotionally without even being aware of it. I mean, part of what I think makes this movie so incredibly effective is that everything has a touch of menace, like every interaction. It's like some yeah. of his interactions with his, with his, with his girlfriend, definitely most of his interactions with the family, his interactions with the groundskeepers, just like every conversation it feels almost like a whodunit. It's like, could that person yeah. be the bad guy? <laughs> yeah, but that. But by the way, the menace is racism. <laughs> like yes. that's all the menace is. <laughs> what is whose side am I on? You know, you're asking that in every single encounter. But you're right. I mean, that's what's sort of genius about it is that he de- the way he deploys kind of racial anxiety in the storytelling. You know, to keep and that's what makes it a horror movie. You know, that that's why we're all in a horror movie is because of this unspoken menace that we call racism. I don't know. It's also interesting, the thing you said about Allison Williams' character, like, I hadn't thought of it this way, but, like, okay, so so the first scene that's, like, really... that. So there's a scene where they're driving to her parents' house, some weird animal carcass... It's, it's a, a deer. deer. They hit a deer. deer. <laughs> yeah. It's right. <laughs> but the deer, like, flies through the air in a way that feels bad and, and, and more menacing than normal. And then the cops come. Uh, so you guys uh, coming up from the city? Yeah, yeah. She's the driver. The cop asks him for his ID. Sir, can I see your license, please? Wait, why? Yeah, I have state ID. No, no, no. He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Yeah, why? That doesn't make any sense. Here. No, no, no. Fuck that. You don't have to give him your ID because you haven't done anything wrong. Itty bitty, it's okay, come on. Anytime there is an incident, we have every right to That's ask. bullshit. Ma'am. She's yeah. making the situation worse. It feels really stressful. And, like, watching it, you're like, oh, this, like, 
white woman who has her own sense of like what is the right thing to do is is like is making a situation more dangerous for the hero. And then when he says to her afterwards in the car, he's like, that was really hot. hot. Like, I'm really glad you yeah. did that. Yeah. I think you're right. It's like there's this part of my brain that wants, I'm like, oh, okay, she can be the hero. She can be the hero. That's good. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like it lets her off the hook in a way where my brain's like, okay, Allison Williams is a hero. Yeah, you're. Yeah, condi- he- I think you're conditioned by the genre to, because everything she's doing is is protecting him. But then we learn, of course, we learn later that it's all for something much more insidious. But that's like yeah. the genius of the storytelling. Yeah. Even that protection of not showing the ID yeah. on like the fifth viewing, it's like she doesn't want him to show the I ID know. so that people don't think that he's missing. Oh, exactly. right. This is what I'm saying, PJ. Too soon. You jumped into the advanced class and you need to get a prereq that you had to get through. <laughs> this is about to be a mind-blowing party is what's going to happen if we get really into it, you know? So after the situation with the cop, Chris and Rose, they pull up to her parents' house. Are you ready? It's this huge house in, like, the middle of nowhere. And... Her parents come out, they sort of look like your garden variety well-to-do white couple. You call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. How are you? I'm good, how are you? We're huggers. I have to say that this is probably one of the most uncomfortable scenes in this movie for me because, um, and if he's listening to this, I just want you to know, Dad, I love you so much. But the dad in this movie seriously reminds me of my dad. Is your dad? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, 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 wow. Not in that he's, you know, not in that we have, like, a palatial manse out in upstate New York, but definitely that, like, I think of my dad as a guy who has sort of, who thinks of himself as, like, nominally progressive, and he is uh, middle class, and um, I'm sure has said stuff like, God, I wish we could have a a third Obama term. Well, I mean, also, it's key to remember, again, it's a hindsight 2020, but he's putting on an act in the movie, right? The whole point is that the family that we meet is not actually that family. They're all kind of performing for their new black captive. So I, you can, you can if, if, this, if the evil that is being portrayed in Get Out plays at your dad, you might be like a little bit off the hook in terms of like <laughs> how you identify there. But, uh, but you know, it is about, it is about a kind of like performance, though, of, of liberal allyship that's ultimately covering up other intentions, you know? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like the family proves to not be good allies at all. <laughs> you know what, Pete? PJ, I was wrong. You were ready for this class. <laughs> I'm that so is, sorry. That is advanced shit right your there, PJ. Astute, yeah, your astute criticism. Thank you. Um, okay, so they meet Rose's family, and, like, the big twist of the movie is just that Rose's family, basically, they're taking black people's bodies putting their brains into those bodies and then taking over so that they can live forever. And Allison Williams, who for most of the movie you think is like a good guy who doesn't like her racist family, she's the ringleader. Like she is the bait. She goes out and dates people, brings them back to the house so that this can happen to them. And so that gets revealed in a scene where Chris realizes the family's out to get him. He doesn't know Rose is bad yet, but he's he says to her like, we got to get out of here. And so she goes to get their stuff together and, like, find the car keys. And he's alone in her room, and he finds this box of photos with all the different black people who she has dated, including, like, the woman Georgina, the black housekeeper who's been acting weird this whole time. So now he knows, like, oh, she's part of it. But even then, it's like he goes downstairs. The family is descending on him like jackals. It's like... The dad, Bradley Whitford, and the hypnotherapist mom, Catherine Keener, they're all about to attack him. 
What is your purpose? Right now, it's, it's finding those keys. But Rose, Allison Williams' character, she's still pretending to be a good guy, and he's so panicked that he's still asking her to find the car keys. And she just keeps pretending to look for them. Rose. I don't know where they are. Rose? Rose! Rose, give me those keys! Rose, give me, give me those keys. Rose, no! No, the keys! What the fuck is going on? Where are those keys, Rose? You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe? And just, Allison Williams is so good at her job in this movie that even though you've been told she's a bad guy, Mm -hmm. like, you've seen the evidence, I still was like, oh, she also can't find her keys. Like, the fact that she's holding her keys is still a surprise to me. Well, because the whole, you know, one of the tensions that it hinges on is, you know, you're trying to along with Chris, you're trying to actually, un- you, you sense there's a conspiracy. It's very Stepford Wives, actually, why you should actually, you know, watch Stepford Wives. You know, the whole thing is about a conspiracy, but you're like, how deep is this conspiracy? Because right. it seems up until he opens that door that actually Allison Williams is clueless about what is going on in her own home. Yes. Right? And, that, and the very fact that she's dating him is proof that she has, like, escaped from this whatever craziness is going on here. But what, and I've actually had that experience where I, I dated someone and then I, like, accidentally started clicking through their, like, Facebook. And I'm like, this person has had exclusively black boyfriends, you know, and this person was not black. But, it's, but that, I found that I identified very hard in that moment. And you're like, oh, man, this is so complicated because... I thought I was I thought I was me, but maybe I'm something else. I mean, the whole thing is about how we project on other people. You know, that's kind of the genius of it. Yeah. I mean, I also I just say that like I you know Allison Williams and, and Catherine Keener's performances to me are so they're like extraordinary, extraordinary performances of acting because they don't play at the joke at all. They they like inhabit it so fully and so seriously, and like there is something about the fact that they're able to maintain this that that is creating that sensation you're describing. Well, you know, know, I I read an interview with Allison Williams where she said, like, basically every time I made a gesture at someone in the movie, I wanted it to be, you to be able to read it the first time you watched it as me being annoyed at them for their sort of casual racism. And then Uh on reflection, I wanted you to be able to read this facial expression as me being upset that they're not letting me go through with the plan fast enough. Mm. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, also, what's weird is Allison Williams hasn't really worked since in, like, a substantive way. And I don't know why that... I mean, that feels, like, honestly, like, racism to me because I think this performance is, like, truly one of the best screen performances of, like, the last, you know, 10 years. Because She's it's, so it's good. So, it's so specific. It's so, like, every, she's alive in every single second of it. And in the, the game... And when you watch it a second time, PJ, and you see what she's actually doing, it's, like... And it's like Meryl Streep level, dude. And, it, and it's just bizarre that she doesn't quite get those props. And she says, like, you know, I took this role specifically to weaponize all the things I was aware of people pigeonholing me as. Like, as, like, mm. Peter Pan and, like, the, like, the like rich, friendly girl on, on, um, on Girls, you know? And it's, like, what a brilliant coup for, as an, for an artist to, to pull. No, totally. So before the scene with the keys, like, before Chris figures out what's going on, he senses something's weird because, you know, he's surrounded by all these weird white people 
And there are black people, like the people who work at the house, um, the housekeeper Georgina, the gardener whose name is Walter. But anytime he interacts with another black person, they just respond in, like, a very strange way. Like, this is what happens when he runs into a character named Logan, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield. Good to see another brother around here. <sighs> yes, of course it is. So Logan is actually Andre, the guy from the beginning of the movie who gets stuffed in the back of the car. Um, it's just like everything about him is very unsettling. He has like a thousand yard stare. He's very stiff and awkward, you know, because he's been body snatched. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. And at this point, Chris is feeling like really unsafe, but he can't put his finger on exactly what's wrong. And everyone else is acting like there's nothing wrong at all. Yeah, I mean, it's all about gaslight. I mean, he's actually just being gaslit. Yes. As, like, many people are saying they've been gaslit right now on the streets, you know? So I think that, like, that's sort of, that's sort of the pleasure of it is that it was capturing something about, like, racial paranoia. Like, that's why that scene with Alice Willoughby's up top is so great, where he's like, have you told them I'm black? And the the strategy she uses is like, yeah, I'm going to tell them, like, I'm bringing my black boyfriend home. You know, she's like, obviously not racist, I'm bringing you home. You know, it's like, everything kind of gets turned back on him. It's like, oh, he's actually afraid for no reason. But we, though, of course, know he should be afraid because Keith... Lakeith just got disappeared like five minutes ago. You know, that's the value of that scene happening up top is that you're kind of always living with the mystery of like, well, what happened to him? Right. You know, as you move through it. It also makes me realize like movies I've watched as a white person that were about racism against black people. It's usually like, they. I don't think I've seen many films that had that feeling of paranoia like correctly depicted. Like it's like, you'll see movies where it's just like, Obviously, like, out in the streets, like, sort of, like, KKK, like, in-your-face racism. You'll see stuff where there's, like, surprising racism. But, like, this movie really, it does, like, it puts me in the place watching it where I'm looking around like a detective trying to be like, what did that mean? Like, is that paranoia? Like, I know something bad is going to happen, but I don't know from who or what. Well, I think something that also doesn't quite get enough airplay that I think is really key is that there are like the there like there's tales from the hood. There's like all these movies that you could point to that were trying to like find this metaphor within the genre. But the tropes that this movie is refusing to fall into is that no one uses the N-word and it's not set in the South. It's like not set on a plantation haunted by slaves. It's right. not there. The KKK has nothing to do with anything. It's just like the purest, almost platonic form of like slavery. Like yeah. it, it's, it's it's like not you you don't if you if I'm sure if you'd seen a hood at some point or like had a flashback to a slave you would have felt like oh I get I get them I get who I'm supposed to be mad at here but because that family just for all intents and purposes puts on such a strong appearance of allyship and liberal liberalness you know you kind of can't figure out how to judge them because maybe they're too close to something you might think of as your own profile. You know what I mean? Exactly. And then all of a sudden, you're watching them do a slave auction. Like, literally. Right. In silence. Chilling. Yeah. Chilling. Ugh. With bingo with, cards. With the bingo cards. <laughs> the details are crazy. <laughs> and that's happening at the same party where Chris goes up to Logan, Lakeith Stanfield's character. Except it turns out it's not a party. It's actually a slave auction. And Chris is just, like, pulled away by Rose for a minute and doesn't know that it's going on. What's actually happening is that white people are having this silent auction to decide who gets to take over Chris's body. 
which is done through this bizarre brain transplantation procedure that's carried out by Rose's dad. I can't remember the fake name. They, what's the name they use for Coagula. it? Coagula. Coagula. <laughs> so, <laughs> so first they they hypnotize him and send him to the sunken place where he's like sort of in like deep in his own consciousness, but not in control of himself. Yeah, I feel like we should maybe explain this a little bit. So Catherine Keener, Missy, the mom, is a hypnotherapist, and she can basically through hypnotism send him to this sort of weird liminal state inside his own consciousness. He's sort of floating in darkness, and he can see what's happening through his eyes on this faraway screen, and he can't, like, move or speak or control anything. Which, like, by the like, way, could there could there be a, a stronger metaphor in the world than that particular feeling that you have of being deep in your consciousness in and unable place? to move and unable to shout? I mean, I that literally that moment when Catherine Keener gets close to the camera and goes... Now you're in the sunken place. It gives me chills even every time I watch it because it's such a that and that moment that whole sequence to me is like poetry. I mean, it's such a like that's where I feel like the like the movie comes alive in like a crazy way. So Rose's family handcuffs Chris to a chair. They turn on this old timey TV, and then this character who's played by Stephen Root, this old white blind guy, explains to Chris that he is going to be the person inhabiting Chris's body. I'm supposed to answer any uh, outstanding questions, uh, concerns you may have so far. Apparently, our common understanding of the process has a positive impact on the success rate of the procedure. He tells Chris that, like, after being hypnotized, he will undergo this brain surgery and... Chris will effectively be killed, but, like, a tiny part of his consciousness will still be there in the sunken place. You'll be able to see and hear what your body is doing, but your existence will be as a passenger. Which is horrifying. Oh, my God. Which is a horrifying idea. Because it's like a brain transplant, but you'll still be in there. And then it backwards explains all these moments where black characters who had been, like, body snatched would have, like, to me, like, one of the most affecting scenes was when Chris is talking to Georgina, the housekeeper, and he's trying to apologize for, like, getting her in trouble with the white people who he still thinks she works for. I wasn't trying to snitch. Snitch. Rat you out. She's, like, smiling and telling him everything's fine while crying. All I know is sometimes, but if there's too many white people, I get nervous, you know? But, it, but it's, like, how they're explaining that people, so they're still in there in a way that's, like, truly horrifying. Right. That's right. 
Yeah, I mean oh. it's I mean that's sort of the that's the horror trope. But well, you know, usually when it's like a zombie film or body snatchers, the idea is that you have been excavated of your body, that your your subjecthood is not in a zombie. But, but what's more horrifying in this version to me is this idea that you are still living your life passively. And this is where I think it becomes like a prison metaphor. You don't get to feel life. You don't get to be a part of this like one thing you get as a being on the earth. You know, and that's the fr- that's that to me is the most chilling detail that they kind of bring up in that. I actually had this, uh, it actually reminded me a lot of the ending of Being John Malkovich. I don't know how long it's mm-hmm. been since you've seen that movie, but in the end of the but movie. It, that's why Catherine Keener is cast. She's in that movie too. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. There's so many weird references to other movies. It's amazing. So the, the whole premise of that movie is like, people go into John Malkovich's brain, but then there's like a dominant personality that takes over eventually John Malkovich's body and decides to live a happy life with Catherine Keener. John Cusack's character is trapped in his body, and you get to see through the eyes of John Malkovich, Catherine Keener and her daughter playing together, and and you can just hear John Cusack's mom, uh, sort of inner monologue saying, like, please look away, please look away, this is too painful, please look away. And I just think about, like, how sad that moment is. And, that, yeah. and that's what they're describing in Get Out, being a person's entire life. Yeah. And it's so fucking frightening. But that's also why it's amazing in the end. I keep forgetting the groundskeep's name. Walter. But, you you know, he shoots his own head and you're like, this moment is like a form of liberation. Because he I, knows that he's going to have to, he has to live with this thing inside of him for the rest of his life. I mean, that's an insanely emotional moment. It was That moment was crazy for me because I don't, I have like a really hard time with um, filmic depictions of suicide. Like I find them so traumatic that they kind of pull me out of the movie usually mm. and with that not only was it did that not happen i did experience it like the way i think you're supposed to experience it like i was like it's triumphant triumphant yeah, it's, it's, triumph. it's a, yeah which is crazy it's crazy that there's a scene in this movie where a man shoots himself through the head and you're just like he got away this is a crazy movie is all I'm saying. it's a crazy movie the i mean other thing i want to ask about both of you is like so one of the reasons I think I enjoyed the I enjoyed the movie because it was really smart and because honestly like relative to those fucking Ari Aster movies it was like it wasn't like there was a lot of it that was like movie that wasn't just like they're like there's not a lot of jump scares there's like menace but they're not there's a lot of things happening um, but the other thing is that it sort of turns at the end he starts like kicking ass like he like kills all the evil white people And then you think, it was funny, he, he kills everybody, Allison Williams, like he vanquishes her, and then this car shows up. Looks like a cop car. And you're like, oh, he's so fucked. This movie's gonna end with him being shot, or it's gonna end with him going to jail and her just like starting everything up again. And then the reveal is that it's not the police, it's actually his friend Rod, who works for the TSA. TSA. But it felt like it felt like that's not the original ending to the movie. Yeah, there's there's alternate ending. Really? So the the original yeah. ending as written, it is not Rod. It is the police, and he goes to jail. Got it. That that ending was filmed, but what happens is the police show up. He puts his hands in the air, and it cuts to a scene of him in jail talking to his friend Rod on the phone. You know, like at the at his friend Rod is visiting. The through the glass, yeah. Yeah, and he says like, he's like, Chris, I need you to try and remember some of the names of the people that are there, that were at this at this thing. 
I just, because I, you know, you didn't leave me much because the whole place burned down. Like there wasn't much evidence for, for us to go on. So give me some names. And he says like, Rod, I'm good. I'm good. He, he, I stopped it. I'm good. And so it's a, it's a quote unquote happy ending. Like he's ended this terrible reign of killing people or stealing people's bodies, but it's a deeply sad ending. It is a terrible, like a terrible ending. And I think, I think that the ending they chose is the right ending because, so again, we talk about how genres are about, you know, genre, generic work is about unifying the people who can share the same moral codes or signs of that genre, right? And horror films are explicitly moralizing. That's because it's life and death. And what I love about this ending is that, right, I mean, I was just listening to the one you guys just did with, um, I think it was for the Ari Aster movies, but you were talking about PJ Howe, you don't like things that end nihilistically, yeah, you know? Right, and so I think this is an amazing example of the difference between those two endings because... You know, in that one ending where he winds up in jail and he's like, I did it, I did it. You know, we're still positing that our hero has to live outside of a, a moral code or suffer beneath one. But what I love in this version is it, it's like, no, actually, he, they all possess the moral code. Like, everyone can be a part of this. It's like, this is a horrible thing that happened and there's a way out of it that doesn't have to end with, like, Black people incarcerated or dead. You know what I mean? Like, justice can happen still. You know, it's like this weird thing where I, can, I, I for like, literally three years of my like sad little TV career, I kept getting pitched the same thing, which was literally like, okay, we have a pitch for you. Um, It's a world in which reparations happen and it's insane. People are dead. They want to murder each other. It's like a nightmare. (laughs) Black people are rounded up. They're living in cages. Like, can you write that? You know, and I'd have to say to people, like, actually, guys, what if there was a show where reparations happened and like, it's okay. (laughs) <laughs> like what if like what if there's like a crazy like bear with me here like there's a world in which like restorative justice happens and we're all like totally chill like can we is that science fiction you know but there's so what I love about this ending is that it's sort of like is allowing this 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 movie to me though it completely is experimental and upends so many tropes that define the genre it actually is like making breaking new ground for it somehow yeah. you know it's but again that's sort of the that's the when we talk about genre, right, we're talking about, they're like rehearsals. They're like emotional and political rehearsals, you know, and you go through them to confirm that your value system is right or to clarify why your value system is right. And that's all you have to do to get through it. You know, it's funny also to hear you talk, having watched these podcasts, I keep wanting to know, like, you know, you're, I think you're afraid of, like, feelings. Let me just diagnose yeah. you now. You know, <laughs> please, that please. You're, no, you're afraid of, like, the feeling of fear, right? But you have to remember that the whole point of these, they're exercises in feeling. They're all, that's, they, they're about, they're taking care of you in that moment, you know? Um, what do you mean they're taking care of me in that moment? That, that the whole point of a story is, like, someone building an emotional experience for you. And if, it, if they're very good writers and it's a very good story, Everything you're feeling, you're feeling safely. You just have to remind yourself of that, that not, none of this is real. And that you're and that in some ways it's about building up a tol- not a tolerance, but a strength around that feeling. So I think the part of why people get addicted to horror films are like people who get addicted to like skydiving. You know, it's like a thrill. It's like you kind of to like rush through those feelings again and again. You feel in some ways like you're taking ownership of them in some way. They'd cease to be so potentially overwhelming or paralyzing because you realize that feelings are just like a passing thing. You know, they're just a sensation. I've had a little, little bit of it. Like the other night after watching it out, I was in the kitchen 
and I was like, I just had that feeling of like there's eyes outside, which I get sometimes late at night, you know? Um, and I was like, that's just a story your brain's right. telling you, which I don't think I totally had before. See? I will also just say, of all the people who have tried to make pitches for why I ought to like, enjoy, watch, not just tolerate horror movies, the idea that they're, um, that they're about how, that they're ethical movies, that means a lot to me. Yeah. Okay. Brandon, thank you so much for being game to do this. Yeah, Brandon, thank you. It was such yeah. a pleasure to talk thank to you. Thank you. Please bring me back if there's a season two, because I have all the movies you can watch, PJ. Don't worry. Oh, boy. Thank you so much, everybody that came along with us on our weird, uh, scary journey. It's been surprisingly fun. Uh, that's it for us for now. You can hear us on Reply All. Thanks. Scaredy Cats is hosted by PJ Vogt and me, Alex Goldman. This episode is produced by Anna Foley and Damiano Marchetti and edited by Tim Howard. We are mixed by Kate Belinsky. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Our intern is Lisa Wang. Special thanks this week to Zane Lada. Our theme song is by Mariana Romano and our closing theme is by me. Additional music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our cover art was made by Ali Moss. Thanks for listening. When T.I. was a kid, he wanted to buy a raunchy record. I just really wanted to hear the curse word. I wanted to hear how far they were willing to go. To find out, listen to Mogul, the show where we talk to people we love about their favorite moments in hip-hop history. I was like, yo, people can do this? God damn. The Mogul Mixtapes. Listen now for free on Spotify. Spotify.